Welcome to the Good Life EDU podcast presented by the Nebraska ESU Coordinating Council. I'm your host, Andrew Easton. Thanks for joining us as we discuss the latest in digital learning across Nebraska and around the country. All right, I'd like to welcome everybody back for another episode of the Good Life EDU podcast. And I'm so excited to be able to chat with Matt Miller today as we're going to explore a little bit about AI in education uh, and learn a little bit from his recent book release of AI for Educators uh, and just press into this topic that is, uh, I think, at the forefront of a lot of teachers and administrators' minds at this time. And I know that Matt has done a great job on his Blended Learning podcast uh, with Holly Clark entertaining these conversations. So you can certainly look to there as a follow-up. Uh, but really, yeah, grateful for your time today, Matt. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Oh, absolutely. I appreciate being invited. And I always love getting to talk about this. I'm trying to figure it out just as much as everybody else is. So I, I love a good conversation about AI right now. Uh, and I think that's really where I hope our entire listenership is at, right? Just I'm not sure we have answers, but we certainly want to have conversations and to grow in our thinking as a result of those. And so I guess I want to start here by saying that if people are looking for an onboarding to this conversation about, wow, I don't even know what ChatGPT is, we have recorded previous episodes on this show that you could check out. But I would like for us today maybe to focus our efforts around, think about some of those implications in the classroom. I mean, so maybe not about what is this technology, but more so what are the implications and repercussions as it pertains to education specifically? So that's broad. <laughs> Where should we go to start things off, Matt? Yeah. So um, I think for one, it's good to understand what we're talking about. You know, sometimes if you throw out the term artificial intelligence, you know, some people immediately go to like Skynet from the Terminator movies. Some people think of Rosie the Robot from the Jetsons. I mean, all of those references are sort of dating me a little bit, but some of us might think of robotic arms in a factory or like maybe it's like a dystopian novel. Like every everybody has sort of a different thought on it. But, you know, I think chat GPT was for many of us the first friendly human feeling face on artificial intelligence that we interacted with. The The interesting thing about it too, is that artificial intelligence has been around. It's been around for a while. You know, whenever Amazon suggests products for you based on things that you've already bought, like that's artificial intelligence, you know, Siri and Alexa and everything all run off of artificial intelligence. There's just like, there's, there's all of these places that it already exists but this is the one that interacts with you. You know, it's a large language model using natural language processing that does it pretty well. And it feels like you're talking to an actual human. And so I think uh, it's good to know what artificial intelligence is before you get started. You know, I mean, it's, it's just very generally, it's machines or technology learning to think the way that a human would which seems kind of weird at first, but in humans, we ourselves are sort of algorithmic creatures anyway. You know, we figure out a process or a way of thinking and we get into patterns because we don't want to have to, you know, create a brand new train of thought, a brand new line of thinking for every single decision. You know, we, we find certain patterns that work for us and we continually follow them. And that makes it easier for computers to learn how humans think because humans follow patterns. And so if computers can learn what some of those patterns are and then be able to replicate them, they've got a pretty high percentage of probability of being able to produce output 
that feels like the kind that a human would. So as far as artificial intelligence goes, like that's the, we can get into the implications for the classroom too, but I feel personally that that's one of the first things that we need to do is we need to figure out what we're talking about and just kind of get a baseline understanding. Yeah. And I would even maybe walk back a term that I introduced in previous podcasts with generative AI and talking about this is really chat GPT generative being the G there, like a, a step away from the chat box. We might be used to uh, asking for customer service assistance in the corner of any window that you might bring up, uh, you know, at a shopping site. Because I listened to a podcast recently from Sam Altman, who is CEO of OpenAI, that, that created ChatGPT. And he, and he said to be careful to not make that distinction on that podcast that it is generative just yet, because as he would perceive it, it's not quite there. Uh, so yeah. I don't know, I'm going to follow his lead right on something that they created as a company, but it's getting close. And I think it's that synthesis piece. And as you like worded it, the thinking that it captures and shares and gets in dialogue with you about is a notable step towards that from what we may have experienced with its predecessors. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. And as far as the, you, you hear that term thrown around, since we're talking about definitions and what is it and everything, you hear that term generative thrown around a lot that comes out of the word generate. Like it generates things for you. As someone who's learning the basics about artificial intelligence, I would say if you want to think of generative AI, it's something that will generate things. So in chat GPT's case, you know, it generates text that feels conversational. Um, you go to something like, you know, like Dolly and some of those other image creation tools, those are generative AI that create images for you. And so, uh, you know, that's something that we haven't had as much of in the mainstream, at least. And now it's coming into the mainstream. And now everybody's having all of those existential debates and, and thoughts about, what does this mean for me? What does this mean for the classroom? What does this mean for the future of work? And like, everybody seems to be, seems to be going there now. And do you think that it's more about change? Is that like the fundamental thing yes. here in that this, right? Like that, that maybe that we can really boil it down to maybe it's not the technology. It's just that the skill set is going to look a little different and the assessments are going to need to look a little, and it's just going to bring about almost force a systemic change in the way that we think about even K-12 education, but uh, even into higher ed as well also. Mm -hmm. yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, think about how we are as humans. I was just talking about how, you know, we develop patterns that we can follow over and over again so that we don't have to rethink something brand new every single time. And whenever our patterns are disrupted, it forces us to do that new original thought. And the problem with that new original thought is that we're creating something where we don't have data to validate it yet, or uh, we don't have the personal experience. Because for so many of us, personal experience is the biggest validating type of data to show that something will work in the future. And so if we don't have that, there's some uncertainty. I talk about this a little bit in my book, AI for Educators. I talk about how a lot of times we get stuck looking at teaching and learning through what I call today glasses. Today glasses are forming judgments about what should be done or what we think about certain things based on the way that the world is today. And the nice thing about looking at the world through today glasses is that it has certainty because we do have data. We do have personal experiences. We do have 
information that we can draw upon. And, you know, there's some, some concrete information that we can make those judgments on. So there's even, you know, best practices and strategies that other people have used. Here's the problem with looking at life through today glasses. Our students don't have that luxury. They don't have the luxury of looking at their lives through today glasses because what's happening today is going to change by the time that they get into the workforce and they become adults. So they really have to look at the world through instead tomorrow glasses. And this touches on what you were talking about, Andrew, because looking at the world through tomorrow glasses is not easy. It is messy. It's based on predictions and prognostications and forecasting things into the future. And the problem with that is that we don't know what the future is going to look like. I mean, we can try to guess, but it doesn't bring that level of certainty. And so that takes us into, we're starting to swim out into waters that teachers hate to be in. And that is that we hate to be wrong. We hate to make mistakes or we, you know, we hate to go out on a limb and have things not work out the way that we, we want that certainty. You know, we crave that certainty. But the problem is that Certainty is a characteristic of today glasses, and we need to look through those tomorrow glasses. So what we've got to be willing to do is to make imperfect decisions, is to make imperfect choices. And so that gets to, I think, what we were talking about there, that it's that change. We're going to have to try to forecast out with our tomorrow glasses what life is going to look like for those students. And we're going to have to start to prepare them for that. Well, how in the world do we do that? Well, we gather as much information as we can about what the world in the future might look like and just ask ourselves the questions. What can I do today in class to develop skills and competencies in our students that will serve them in that tomorrow world? That's really what looking at the world through tomorrow glasses is all about. And forgive me for going on and on about this a little bit. I've been thinking about this an awful lot recently. And I think this is this is what we're trying to do right now, right? Is we're trying to figure out what is that future going to look like and how can we help pre prepare kids for it? It's gonna it's gonna have to do with looking through our tomorrow glasses and taking imperfect steps that might be wrong. That's just I because if we if we rely on what we've always done, if we look through today glasses, it's like our kids don't stand a chance because we're not preparing them for that future world. So yes, it comes back to change. That's what you started this with is change. It comes to change. And I think we've got to be willing to change, even if we're not sure that it's going to be right. And what, what's interesting in that internal conflict between the present and the future is that I feel yeah. like historically as educators, we've said we're preparing kids for a future that we can't predict. And what's interesting is actually this technology at least serves as a, a guidepost for what might be possible in a way that we just would have pointed to uh, ambiguously. Yes. <laughs> or we can go, actually, wow, this this thing's going to be there in some future iteration. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think that that, oddly enough, provides at least a direction of certainty that is unnerving <laughs> because uh -huh. now there are implications with that a phrase that I feel like we've all uttered before. Yeah. Yeah. You, no, you're right. There's that, that uncertainty that, I mean, whenever we've talked about artificial, I'll just go with myself. Whenever I've talked about artificial intelligence, 
in the past, it's been like, yeah, it's coming. It'll, it'll happen. It'll, it'll be, it'll be big. I'm sure, you know, like, <laughs> but it's that moment where you go, oh my goodness, it's actually here. Um, I hear people talk a lot about climate change and the changing world and everything. They talk about it in those terms sometimes, like you can't see it. You can't, well, I mean, maybe, I, I don't know. I'm not going to get into this because I'm not very well versed in it, but I think that's just another example of something that, you know, like we know that it's, it, it could Im impact us at some point, but we talk about it in generalities just like you said. And that's exactly what we've been doing with artificial intelligence. And now here we are. Now there is a tool out on the market that you can use for free, at least right now, that will do a lot of the things that AI has been promising. And so now we've got to start asking ourselves, what does this say about the classroom? What are we going to have to change in the classroom? Uh, how does this impact me as a teacher? Am I going to become obsolete? You know, like there's all of those questions that we have to tackle. And as you have obviously been very active uh, in conversations and work in support of others in, in this area, what are some of those implications that you're seeing? Or what are some of maybe the initial concerns that we should be thinking through at this time? Again, whether you're a classroom teacher or even from a leadership lens. Yeah. Let's start with the here and now, like the most pressing first, because I think with the teachers that are becoming more and more familiar with chat GPT and Bard and Bing and, you know, like all the other ones that are, in my opinion, not quite there the same way that ChatGPT is, but we're starting to see more and more of these AI tools come out. And we, we, we've got to start figuring out like, what are some steps that we can take immediately? Because when we start to see all of that stuff, I think with some teachers, their first reaction is to go, oh my goodness, this thing can write essays for my students. It can answer questions on their homework. I have an essay in my lesson plans on Tuesday. What am I going to do? Like, I don't have time to reinvent a whole new paradigm of education. I don't have time to, you know, innovate what the, the system of education looks like. I just need to plan lessons for like tomorrow. And so, you know, I think one thing we have to, we have to realize is that yes, those tools can help our students do work. And in fact, I think we will we'll get to a point where we have to we have to expect that artificial intelligence will have touched almost anything that we ask our students to turn into us. I think at some point we're going to have to deal with that. That sounds really weird right now, but here's the reality that some of us haven't considered. It already has. Have you heard of Grammarly before? You know, Grammarly helps clean up your grammar and the way that you write things. Guess what it runs on? It uses artificial intelligence to do that. How about spell check and grammar check inside of Google Docs? You know, like we go back years and years and people started seeing spell check and there was that little squiggle under a misspelled word. And they're like, oh my goodness, this is going to make students so dumb. They're never going to have to learn how to spell anything. I don't even want them to use spell check. And now we look back like 10 plus years we look back on those feelings and we're like, we use spell check for everything now. You know, it's like we, we don't even give it a second thought. I think we're going to get to that point to some extent. Now, the other thing that we have to figure out, and you mentioned this at the top of the show, and I think it was so important. You said we need to have some of these conversations. 
you mentioned the, the, the key term conversations, like this is something we're going to have to talk about. We're going to have to talk about what do we do immediately in the classroom? How do we help students know how to use this in a responsible way? Because using AI doesn't necessarily equate to cheating. Uh, using AI doesn't necessarily equate to zero thinking done by the student. You can't look at it in such a binary fashion. I don't think that it's either all right or it's all wrong. So we have to have those conversations about what are responsible ways that we can use this? How do we determine whether students are using this in a way that's going to better them for the future? Because we do have to help them figure out how to use this in a responsible, ethical way that also helps them to bring value to the workforce and the world. You know, we don't want kids to just run around asking chat GPT for the answers to everything in their entire world, because you can outsource somebody like that. If you, if it's a job, you know, like you can, you can do that with AI and not have to pay somebody for that. So um, I think especially this summer, teachers having conversations with other teachers, admins having conversations with teachers and themselves, having discussions with students, even having conversations with parents in the community, like what is going to prepare kids for the future? I think those conversations are going to be key. I'm so glad you went there with that response too, because that's really something that I would hope, whether you're a leader as a classroom practitioner, or you are in a role as an administrator in a district, uh, spending some time ahead of next school year making space so that when you get to those August meetings, that there is some yeah. uh, consensus and open conversations as a staff around how are we going to think about this, utilize this, parameters, expectations. for And, and I, I understand that that's a nuanced thing that might happen by discipline or by teacher a little bit too, right? Subject to subject, classroom to classroom. Uh, but the more mm -hmm. that leadership can kind of unify everyone, I think in terms of just some basic understanding and some parameters as far as you need to be having conversations with your students about how to use this effectively is I, I think it is more pervasively used than uh, we might even uh, be aware of as uh, mm -hmm. an education community. Uh, but I think that by the time we get to August, it's going to need to go to that next step in our thoughts. I'm, I'm very much an advocate for that. I don't know where that lands for yes. you, but I, hear, yes. I heard that what you're sharing there. Yeah. You know, um, I came across an example of this that I thought was really telling there was a high school in Florida that not too long ago took some harsh steps against students that were using artificial intelligence. Now, A, I'm not going to identify that school, and B, I don't want to come down too hard on somebody who has to, on a school that has to make decisions quickly, because especially the ones that that act early, they're the ones that seem to end up on the national news. And when everybody's doing the same thing that everybody else is, it's a little bit easier. So I don't want to come down on them too hard, but I think this is a telling story. This was a high school in Florida, international baccalaureate school. So, you know, they've got students that are taking some high level courses that, you know, will, will be sort of weighted when they, when they get into college and everything. And they started to find out that students were using artificial intelligence in their work in those classes. Now it didn't specify how they were using it. And that's one of the first questions that I would want to ask is how are they using it? In fact, since all of this broke, International Baccalaureate has come out with some guidance on how artificial intelligence should play into students' work. But the the poor teachers that were 
and school leaders that were having to decide this were going in with no guidance whatsoever to make this decision. So they came down to sending uh, letters home to parents and saying, if your student has used artificial intelligence in their work for these international baccalaureate classes, there's a chance that they might not graduate. We can't confirm that they did the work themselves. And if the IB can't certify their work, then it can't be a certified credit because it can't be a certified credit. Then they can't grow. It's like they went there. They went down that road basically because they wanted to put teeth to their decision that AI was bad and kids shouldn't use it. And here's the issue that I have. Um, the issue is not that kids should use AI by all means necessary so that they don't think, you know, I don't think that's anything that anybody wants, but the truth is that they took some pretty swift, rash action without any of those conversations. Here we go again, Andrew, back to the conversations, right? Because exactly. I'm pretty sure, I mean, I even went to that school's uh, academic handbook and looked around in it, and I didn't see anything giving any sort of guidance about appropriate and inappropriate use of artificial intelligence to do their work. It's hard to tell a kid that they can't graduate because they use something that they have absolutely zero guidance on how to use or how not to use. It showed up too fast. And so I think the solution should have been, in my humble opinion, I think the solution should have been to have a conversation about it, to just like hit pause and go, okay, this just came up on us. Let's learn about it. Let's talk about it. Let's figure some of these things out and then we'll decide on what's appropriate going forward. Let's give some guidance. Let's put some guidelines in place. And it sounds like that didn't happen. So, you know, when it comes to those conversations that maybe happen this summer, maybe happen over the next calendar year or so, I think we have to not just figure out how are we going to punish kids who use artificial intelligence. I think we have to figure out how do we want them to use it? How could they or should they use it in a responsible manner that prepares them for their future and not the world as it is today? And for me, in hearing that, that's the part that my mind is wrestling with in terms of, I do think that there are a myriad of positive ways in which to leverage this that still would mm -hmm. require thinking and certainly would never want to lose that very much to your point. But I do think that's a tough part of this thinking then is to say, okay, I would love for you student to use this to a certain point and then pause, do some work and that productive struggle of learning there. And then you could even maybe lean into it again, but not to just let it take you from A to B to C all the way through the entirety of the process. And that that's part of where my thinking is right now. And some of the things that I've read, because it, it is striking how much it navigates the full breadth of, let's just say like a writing process, for example, not as well as a student could in some aspects in terms of like voice and ideas, but it could be a crutch. Yeah. Oh, it certainly can be. You're right. Um, I think you're right though. We've got to be on lookout for that. Um, I think a lot of folks are going to look at, let's, let's bring another issue to light here that's been a big part of these AI conversations. I think a lot of folks will want to use AI detectors to determine that those crutches are being used. And here's the thing I'm learning about AI detectors. They're not very accurate. And there are some things that you can do to sort of like fool them pretty easily. Now, 
<laughs> as soon as chat GPT came out and some of us in education started to see what it was able to do and how it was going to disrupt the classroom, there was like a land grab for AI detectors. Like there's got to be a way that we can run it through it. They're like, with turn it in, we can do this with plagiarism. Certainly we can do this with AI, you know? Well, the problem is that traditional Turnitin, and I know that they're just they're just rolling out some some AI detectors right now, but traditional Turnitin is based on the legacy definition of plagiarism, which I wonder if the the definition of plagiarism will start to morph over time. I don't know. We'll have to see. But the legacy definition of plagiarism is taking someone else's intellectual property and trying to pass it off as your own. Well. The problem with that with AI is that we're talking about intellectual property here. You know who owns intellectual property? Not artificial intelligence. Humans own intellectual property because we're basing it on a system of content creation where only humans created the content. And so if artificial intelligence creates something, who owns that? Well, one time I asked ChatGPT, okay, that was a good answer. Who owns that answer? And ChatGPT was like, well, I don't. Because <laughs> it said, it even told me, humans own intellectual property. And so I asked it, well, who owns that? And it was real evasive and everything. Since then, I've read that the stuff that's created by uh, artificial intelligence is almost like it's in the public domain. And if you're not familiar with like copyright type stuff, Public domain is work that is created that doesn't have intellectual property ownership by anyone. For instance, you know, stuff that's written or created, uh, books and poetry and songs and stuff like that. Uh, after about 100 years, the copyright on it disappears and it goes into the public domain. And if something's in the public domain, it means that anybody can use it without attribution and it's legal and it's okay. So if all of that stuff is in the public domain and you want to accuse a student of plagiarism because they used artificial intelligence, by the definition of plagiarism, it isn't plagiarism because it wasn't intellectual property that was owned by someone else. We've just, we got to be careful, I think. And we also have to get back to the basics of figuring out what do we want kids to do? And have we communicated it, you know? And so that, that whole debate is going to be that whole like plagiarism and cheating thing. I mean, we can get even further into that if you want to. That's going to be something that we're going to have to wrestle with big time, I think. Well, it's funny as you go there, I'm thinking about a set of searches I did recently where I guess, or conversations, I should say that started with chat GPT, where I was asking for quotes on a particular topic and it continued to sh share with me five that were unknown, unknown author, unknown author. And so mm -hmm. I asked, uh, are you intentionally finding ones that are unknown, Sue, that you're not <laughs> responsible for? Uh, and it said, no, but what I am doing is taking pieces from a lot of the popular and Essentially, it was almost calling itself the unknown author in those instances yep. because it was synthesizing quotes and presenting those. And so I was like, I would like a few from known authors, please. And still uh, three of the five were from unknown author. And so there mm -hmm. are still some little hiccups in there. And I wonder to what degree that obviously is an intentional design of the program. Yeah. To avoid some of the copyright things that I think that you're alluding to there. 
Oh, and see, Andrew, you are wading into waters that are murky and difficult because now you're starting to to talk a little bit about the the data set and how it uses the data set. Here's one thing that we're starting to learn about a lot of these AI tools is that they run on percentages and they want to get the highest percentage chance that they're going to be right. That's all that they're really doing is they're learning from humans and they're guessing the best chance they have of being right. And a lot of times, you know, their their answers are spot on because they can get a really high percentage chance of guessing. The problem is that whenever they don't have a super high percentage chance, they start to fill in the blanks a little bit, the way that they think it should be, but but it isn't. And that goes back to, again, we keep coming back to some of this foundational information about artificial intelligence. Uh, tools like ChatGPT are intelligent. You know, they, they, they get their information from a data set. So in the case of ChatGPT, the data set involves lots and lots and lots of information pulled off of the internet. Now, some of it is valid information. Some of it is, you know, stuff that you and I would would deem accurate and reliable from good sources and everything. But some of it is pulled right off of like Blogger. You know, you and I could have gone and created a Blogger blog and put all sorts of conspiracy theories and fake news and, you know, misinformation and everything out there. And that ends up in ChatGPT's data set. It comes from books. It comes from all of these other sources. And the problem with a data set is that there are gaps. And there is bad information and there are biases and there's, you know, like all of this stuff inside of the data set. So when you read something, you have to take that into consideration that it's taking all this information and it's learning from it. You know, that's, there's, there's two parts to it. It's like, what is the data in the data set and how has it learned? How has it noticed patterns and regularities and conclusions that it can draw about humans and information and the way that they communicate. It's doing all of that from the data set. But the data set is not the entirety of all of human understanding. And it also is made from certain perspectives. So, you know, for instance, I was just doing a presentation at the ASCD conference uh, with Ken Shelton, and he shared some slides where a teacher was uh, asking ChatGPT for a list of women that students could do a report on for Women's History Month. And then they started adjusting the prompt that they gave ChatGPT, and they started to ask for a list of radical women that students could study. And the vast majority of the ones that came back were women of color. And then they adjusted it to say traditional women. And you can imagine that a lot of the ones that came back in that were white. You start to see that, and it's not because someone's programmed that in. I think that's just taken from the data set. And if it's learning from all the things that it's seen in the data set, this is what it's coming back with. So we have to know that the biases of humans that have been put onto the internet show up in the results. And then the last thing, and then I'll finally stop. I'm sorry, you got me going on something that, that I think is oh, really man, important for people to know. Yeah. Um, the other thing that you've got to keep in mind too is that artificial intelligence and the algorithms that run it were created by humans. And it's a very small subset of humans. 
So for instance, with OpenAI, there is, you know, if you compare it to the entirety of all of humanity on the planet, this is a teeny tiny small percentage of people on the planet that helped write the code that runs ChatGPT. And so if that's the case, it, you've got to ask whose definition, this is another thing that, that Ken shared that I thought was super important, whose definition of intelligence are we working from? And how those people who write the code, how are their personal perspectives and their unique history and their culture and all of that stuff playing into the algorithms that create what we see? So there's a lot of murky, unclear stuff going on here. And whenever an AI tool like ChatGPT spits out an answer, we've got to be critical of the results that it gives. And we've got to understand where all of that comes from. And so again, you talked about conversations earlier. Here's some other conversations we need to have with our students. We need to look at the results that it gives and we need to ask, how accurate is this? How fair is this? What bias do we see in this? Whose perspective does this all represent? So, uh, like, like I said, you know, these are, these are murky waters to wade out into, but it's, it's kind of the reality that we're living in. And one thing to add to that as well, right? So you have the, the data set yep. and you have the programmers uh, who are putting those algorithms and pieces together. And then you also kind of have that third wall of those that are interacting with it, asking questions, liking different mm -hmm. comments, et cetera, which also is its own. I mean, there's a myriad of demographics and uh, input that's coming from those folks who are using it. And that was something that, again, that podcast I listened to with Sam Altman was sort of that third piece as well. Uh, and what that means to how much that gets ranked into the algorithms that are being created by those programmers um, mm -hmm. and not trying to weigh one demographic more than another. And so I guess that's probably the interplay of those two. And Gosh, yeah, there's just so much to really dive into. I feel like maybe though at this point, let's like to give a little hope, what are some positive ways yeah. in which we can think about integrating this? Because I think all of the concerns, you know, are certainly out there and at the forefront of our thoughts. But I do find that this is a great opportunity for asking students instead of having to research 15 different sites to really ask questions and get a very pertinent and concise response. And it accelerates exposure to correct information often. I mean, right. Yeah. Like as much as yeah, it does in holes, um, it certainly can help speed up the curation of that information and your ability to interact with it. Yeah, no, it, it certainly does. Um, and you're right. I, now that I look back on our conversation, I do feel like we've, we've covered an awful lot of the concerns. Um, I want to stop right now and say, I'm very optimistic about our future with artificial intelligence and Speaking to what you just touched on, I feel like one impact that it will have over time on the classroom is that it will elevate the level of content and the level of thinking and the level of discussion that we're able to have in any given classroom. And we've seen this, for example, with the calculator. I know lots of people use the calculator as the comparison to AI uh, because years ago we wanted students to do calculations by hand because... You're never going to have a calculator in your pocket whenever you need it. Well, guess what? We have a supercomputer in our pocket now. But 
what happened with the calculator was now we didn't have to spend so much time in class. We didn't have to spend those precious instructional minutes doing calculations by hand. So then what did we get to do? Instead, we started talking about higher level math. We started elevating the amount of con the, the level of concepts that we could get to in a given year. And so it was almost like because we were using the calculator to outsource some of the rudimentary, routine, mundane parts, it's almost like my favorite analogy to this is it's like the tide. You know, in the harbor, there's all of these ships in the harbor at their different docks and the tide comes in and all of the ships get higher because of the tide. In that case, the calculator was kind of like the tide that helps all of the ships to rise. So what I think is going to happen in other classes with AI is that AI is going to keep us from having to do some of the routine mundane things that we do and will hopefully raise the level of discussion, raise the level of content, raise the level of thinking higher so that we can you know, get, get to more and better over time. And I think the second thing that makes me really, really optimistic is that it's going to give us as teachers the most valuable currency that we can have to do the things that matter the most in the classroom. Time. It's going to give us time. You know, every place I go, whenever I work with schools and school districts and workshops and, you know, even when I just am talking to teachers, it's always about time. We never have enough time to do the things that we need the most for kids. And then on the other side of it, teachers are getting burned out because there's too much stuff and not enough time, and then they don't get to go home at a reasonable hour. So what if AI helps us start to do some of that stuff? What if we use AI to help us develop lesson plans, to develop activities, to get ideas for those activities, to help us to create feedback? Uh, to help us to create discussion questions and prompts we can give students, to help us to generate hooks and things that will engage students, to help students to reflect, to, I mean, like all of those things that I just listed right there, you can go ask ChatGPT to do all of those things and it'll do some version of it. And what you get in return is a first draft. It's not going to do all of the thinking for us, and it's not going to remove the need for teachers. It's going to create a first draft for us. And so then it's up to us. This is what makes us special as human educators. It's up to us to adjust it and change it and make it exactly what we need. So maybe a lesson plan that would take us 20 minutes to plan only takes us eight. And when you start to replicate that process over and over and over again, each time that it saves us those 12 minutes... From 20 minutes down to eight, each time you get those extra 12 minutes over and over and over and over again, it starts to free us up to do the things that really, really matter most. That's maybe one of the biggest things that I'm excited about is its potential to give us the time to do the things that matter the most, or maybe the thing that matters most is to get out the door at three o'clock because we need it for our mental health and we want good teachers to stay in the profession. 
Dang. So many things to build off of what you just shared there. So I, I'm with yeah. you too. I love like CuriePod and some of those where you can also enter in some information. It'll bring up a slide deck for you and even embed some like opportunities for turn and talk some questions, et cetera. Uh, that's going to speed up our time. So I think, yep. uh, and I also would point to some of the things that Canva uh, in the recent releases has done with AI to help expedite the creative process for things along those lines. So that's really mm -hmm. great. Uh, I think too, to those strategies piece that you were talking about, I know there's an investment in Nebraska and I'm sure it is widespread, uh, like for UDL or inquiry work, mm -hmm. get some more inquiry questions. Or if a student with the UDL model, if we're talking about embedding that within the MTSS framework, we can find different strategies for different learners uh, just by asking ChatGPT, what are other ways that someone might be inclined to do this particular step of the learning process when it's not ours, right? It's tough as a teacher sometimes to imagine what might help someone outside of our own perspective. And I want to go back to your first one because yeah. you just shaped that for me too. So we're talking about that math piece in the calculator. I mean, is this going to be the new way that we think about the writing process? Yeah. So is it going to be that, you know, you don't get the access to a calculator when you're in the elementary grades because it's imperative that you learn six times six and those kind of things. Uh, so that if and when the future technology is off, you at least have enough number sense to know, hey, wait a minute, <laughs> like that doesn't quite seem right to me. And then you can look into it a little bit further. But eventually, mm -hmm. as you progress through the system, you are allowed to use a calculator and it does speed up some of those steps so that you can do that additional work. And is that where the writing process goes now with regards to we're going to still teach the fundamentals of brainstorming and outlining, writing mm -hmm. uh, paragraphs and, and complete essays. But at some point, leveraging the technology to expedite those and enhance what we're able to do uh, in, in the area of voice and creative thought uh, and expression. If it doesn't take me two weeks to put an essay together, maybe I get the reps of writing four or five in a quarter where I never would have had the opportunity to do that otherwise. Yes. Yes, exactly. And so our faculties as a writer and a creator and a student continue to improve. Um, someone who works in the generative AI space that I talked to said that one of the big things that he sees changing in all of humanity, but especially in education, is that the role of the human will become a little bit less on the creation and a little bit more on the editing. We won't create the first draft, but we will edit it. Um, that's not to say that we won't ever write anymore, but it'll start to shift a little bit more in that direction because, you know, again, whenever we create, a lot of times it's formulaic anyway. And so, um, I mean, think about, okay, classic example. If your listeners want a very specific way that chat GPT and AI can start to save them time right away, if they write letters of recommendation chat GPT can help those out a lot. I've written dozens of letters of recommendation as a teacher in my life, and a lot of them start to sound the same. And so if they're becoming formulaic, if they're becoming algorithmic almost, then what do we do? We outsource that formula. We outsource that algorithm to artificial intelligence to get the first draft. And we even tell it, include this and this and this and this and this and this. And it starts to weave all of that stuff in there. We get the result. We look at it and go, yeah, that's pretty good. I need to change this and this and this and this and this. But I just created in four minutes something that would have taken me a half an hour. And now, boom, I'm on to something else, you know? So, yeah, I think... That, that's going to be one of the interesting shifts, I think. That whole idea of less the creator of brand new content, a little more of editing. And, you know, really, I think that can benefit students too. 
because we want students to create things from scratch, but we also have seen students crippled by the blank screen and the blinking cursor and not knowing how to start. I've seen students in my own class where I've given them a short essay in Spanish or English or whatever. And I'm thinking, this is going to take you five minutes. It's no big deal. But they don't either have the confidence or the skills to get started or even the strategy to know where to start. And so they procrastinate and they make excuses or they goof around with their buddies or something. And it's not because they don't, not necessarily because they don't want to do it. It's because they don't know how or they don't know where to start. And so now this is going to empower some of those people. And guess what? There are adults that are just like this too, that are just like those kids that grew up into adult bodies and still have the same views about creating things. This is going to empower some of those adults too, to take their ideas and get a first draft of them and get their ideas out to the people that need to hear them. I love that. And that Again, I've been tinkering around with this a lot too. So uh, something that uh, it makes me think of is just being clear about the standard that you're after, right? It's in that instance, it's not necessarily that we're trying to hit some sort of formulaic expression for a letter of recommendation. It's just trying to get those ideas down on a page in a way that someone else can have access to the amazingness that is that human that you're recommending, right? And in a similar vein, I had a colleague of mine say, well, if we start to ask learners um, to write about their personal experiences, then the computer can't do that. So I was like, I get there's got to be a way around this, right? And so I, I typed in, hey, will you write something about I'm an educator? And I gave it some some details, not a lot, but enough about who mm -hmm. I am to write something. And it came back, as you said, with some gaps, but also like some parts that were really good. And then I was like, I don't know what else to do. I go, oh, um, what else do you need to know, chat GPT, about me yeah. to enhance this? It came up with about seven or eight questions that if that's the goal, thinking and reflecting about those particular prompts that I would not have thought to ask those of myself, it forced me into a space of reflection that I would not have gotten to on my own. And then yeah. I answered each of those questions individually. And that's that's maybe the the standard. Maybe that's like the aim that, you know, that you're uh, trying to hit uh, and that it integrated all of that and in that form that doesn't have me, as you said, standing there staring at the page going, <laughs> and the concern. So yeah, I love thinking through those things. It really depends on the skill. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's it's kind of incredible what it can do. And I think we're just starting to scratch the surface, you know? Yeah, because it's uh, tempting to view it as a, a Google search. I think that's for me the tough part is trying to think through how to interact with it in a way that isn't something like that where it's really predicated on knowledge and short responses. But well, our conversation has run a little long here, Matt, because I've had so much fun. We knew fun. this was going to happen. <laughs> we did from the start. Um, but I guess uh, to bring things to a close today, can I ask, um, I'll just give you a little bit of space. So it's one thing you'd like to either highlight or point out about this conversation or something we didn't cover. Uh, and then we'll kind of point people again to where they can connect with you. Yeah, I really, th I mean, like, like I mentioned earlier, I am super optimistic I think we have to tread cautiously when it comes to artificial intelligence and it's good to learn. And it's also good to hear from people with a variety of perspectives and keep our minds open. And I think if we come to it sort of non-judgmentally like that, and if we look through our, our tomorrow glasses, you know, looking into the future and trying to figure out what's going to be best to prepare students for a world where this is reality. I mean, AI isn't going anywhere. People who study technology and, you know, emergent disruptive technologies like this are saying, hey, this is widespread and it's moving fast and it's not going anywhere. So we have to figure out 
how it fits into the world. And I think the more educators that are on board with helping kids prepare for the world where that exists, instead of digging our heels in to preserve the world as it is today, like, I think that's what's really, really going to help kids. I love that. And as these conversations continue to evolve, and you're so active in those spaces and generous with your time to be on the podcast today and in all the other spaces. Um, what are some of those other spaces? Where can people continue to follow the conversations that you're a part of? Yeah. We pointed to your podcast, your book, uh, and maybe a website as well, because I know you got some resources and courses too. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So um, if you want to dig deeper on this, let me give you about three places there you can go with resources that I've created if you're interested. Let me start with the free one because what's a teacher's favorite price? <laughs> uh, I created a great big long blog post with a lot of my thoughts around all of this. It's well organized. It's easy to navigate. It has some very concrete, practical ways that you can use AI in your teaching, but also, you know, opening your mind and shifting your mindset on it. You can find that at ditch.link slash AI. Now, I took a lot of those ideas and added to them and kind of like put them into one great big cohesive thought and published in a book that I mentioned earlier. It's called AI for Educators. Uh, it's a it's an easy read. It doesn't mean that it isn't going to challenge you, but it is readable. I keep hearing from people who have bought the book that said, I read through the whole thing in one sitting. Like it's doable. It's not you know, super technical. It's not full of jargon. And it gives you lots and lots of things to think about. So that's available in paperback and Kindle ebook on Amazon. If you just go search for AI for educators. And then finally, I'm offering some online courses. There's a spring cohort that runs from April 17th to May 12th. And even if you join late on that, um, you know, we're, we're going to have some live uh, some live videos and lots of extra resources and places where we can discuss and everything. Uh, you can get to that at ditch.link slash AI courses. So any of those things, either the free blog post or the book or the course at ditch.link slash AI courses, like any of that stuff, there's lots of things that you can do to help wrap your brain around all of this and figure all of this AI stuff out. Well, then I'll just reiterate to, as we close here. Thank you so much for all of your leadership in this space as we uh, continue to have conversations and grow together. Oh, my pleasure. And this has been a great conversation. This has stretched my thinking too. So I appreciate it, Andrew. I love that as well, Matt. Thanks. 